we're all taking risks in a lot of things that we do. But part of taking a risk is also knowing when we need to stop. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, and today I have Deb Newell on the show. Deb, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm excited to chat with you today, and I want to hear a little bit about your background in property management. How did you get into the industry? I got into the industry probably back in 1997, 98. Um, I wanted to get out of debt. I think, uh, you know, I had some school debt and uh, was looking at a quick way to do that. And I didn't really, you know, just kind of fell upon, I, I knew somebody who was flipping homes and just fell upon it and thought, how hard could it be? <laughs> and so started really, but I started doing that, but I, you know, just got right into it and doing the work um, and flipping the first one, taking the profit, buying another one. And then slowly starting to keep them. And as you kept them and that portfolio grew, somebody had to manage them. So I kind of created the company as a, really a persona so that the tenants wouldn't know who I was because mm. I didn't want them to know mm -hmm. that I was the owner. Yep, sure. Right? So I was a little bit of Oz, right? Playing a little bit of that man behind the curtain. So, um, you know, when I knock on doors, when i showing properties, doing all of that, I wanted them to... Um, to have that in place. But then as I was doing this for our own properties, uh, realtors, you know, as we were buying them would ask, Hey, you know, I know somebody or, or, or could you, you know, manage mine. And so it really grew organically by doing that way. No marketing, no website, no anything. Um, and just kind of started that way. And I thought, well, how hard can this be? So, uh, you know, and doing it for really cheap. And then, it, like, like we're talking four or five percent management fee. And, Ooh, and, but, ouch! But you know, ouch. I was thinking it was just me. I had no overhead. I was doing it out of my basement of my home, and uh, I, I, I think I used Tenant Pro or some. I can't even remember the. It's not even around anymore. Um, and so it, it was just. I found a software that was super cheap. Did it and uh, just kind of grew from there. And what did you find in the industry that you liked? Obviously, there's a lot that's mm -hmm. challenging in the industry. There's a lot that can burn people out. What did you find early on that you did kind of vibe and connect with? The maintenance was always my thing. I always enjoyed the challenge of maintenance, um, working, solving the problems. And I think that's always been my vibe is just how can I solve a problem, whether it be for maintenance or anything else. It was just how do we find a solution? Uh, you know, when you're managing and you're doing it, really bootstrapping it yourself and you're meeting your tenants and you're meeting the owners, you're helping owners solve a problem for management. And then you're helping tenants solve a problem for paying their rent. And then even with maintenance, it was solving the problems for, you know, what's really wrong? How could we fix this? And... So I think it's always just been innately part of who I am. It's just how can I fix something? And, uh, you know, I went to college and uh, 
enjoyed teaching as part of my senior, you know, pro program. And I thought that's kind of where it came from is just, I really liked educating. I never was really good at sales or selling something to somebody. I just wanted them to be educated on how could you be better and how can we make this so it doesn't happen again. What is the skill set involved in maintenance diagnosis? It's interesting the observation that maintenance mm -hmm. kind of is property management. If you strip out maintenance, what do you have? You have like, you know, software like Cozy or Avail, rent collection, some pretty basic stuff. Sure. Within maintenance, you can you can view a lot of it as some low-level, fairly explicit tasks, but the art of diagnosis and knowing what should or shouldn't be done. That's some some collected wisdom. What is that what does that intuition look like to you? Critical thinking skills, I think, part of it. Uh, you know, when I run into people and they, they f a lot of people fear maintenance because it's the unknown. They, they think because I didn't know how to do it or I don't myself know how to change a flapper in a toilet or I don't even understand the concept of how do I go beyond the garbage disposal and the little wrench and the button, right? So if they don't know the basics, some it, there's a fear there. It's just the fear of the unknown and we're afraid to make a mistake or afraid to misquote something. And you know, tenants will be quick to blame or quick to say, it wasn't me. And we have to diagnose beyond just what the actual problem is. We also need to figure out, well, who did it? Or was it, is it a normal wear and tear? Is it something that was maliciously done by a tenant or accidental by a guest of a tenant? Um, so I don't, you know, I think it's knowledge that can be built. And as you, it's just repetition, as you do something over and over again, you start just kind of gathering your own knowledge base and your own library of things that you know how to do. And then eventually you kind of advance to the next thing. So maybe it's just basic daily service requests all the time that we can handle. And then as we learn through others, so I need a handyman to be able to go out and do more complicated things. The idea is learn from them so that we know exactly what the problem is. And don't just take face value for what they're telling you, ask the questions. Because I'm always thinking, what is the owner gonna ask me? And how, if, if they're gonna ask me that question, I need to ask that question first. And then that way I'm more prepared for when they ask me. And it's okay to say, I don't know, but let me get back to you. And if you say that, get back to them. Mm. So when you think about in-house versus working with third parties, what are your, mm -hmm. what are some of your strong opinions on on how maintenance should be done well structured etc you know that's i get I, I get asked that a lot and i think there's a myriad of different things that come into play with that it's not necessarily on door count i think it really comes down to what's your market what um, how many work orders you're actually producing so you can have some markets that will you know we're doing 5 6 7 work orders a day and you can take that same um, you know, company and put it in a different market and they're only generating two, three, four. And so it really depends. And that will determine, do I have somebody in-house as a general handyman or do I, you know, do third party for everything? Either way, I think there's a learning curve to learn from both, learn from third party vendors on how to help diagnose so that they can be better prepared to go out to the property and do the maintenance. And then therefore they'll actually be thankful for when they, um, you know, you have work for them to do. 
So I think that's part of it as well. We want to be as prepared as we can to help our vendors as much as we can so that we can give them more work and they refer work to us as well. So beyond volume, what are the other factors in finding great third-party vendors? Obviously, it's a good In finding them? Yeah. Volume volume is the easy answer. If you have enough volume, you have leverage. Beyond that, what helps you find and maintain those relationships? That's a really good question. I think it's just taking care of so I think it could be, you know, how quickly do we pay our vendors? How how quickly, how well do we communicate to them? Um, are we having them communicate to our owners? Are we filtering everything? Are we coordinating the work for them um, internally? Are we scheduling for them? Are we putting them in touch with the tenants? Do we have vendor agreements? How prepared are we to actually do that? And then to find them, it, that can be tricky. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And Oftentimes, you might go through many vendors, especially cleaners, lawn care people. You tend to go through them the most because, you know, expectations change. And at the same time, I think you also need to set your expectations up front. So if you know what your rent-ready condition is for whatever whatever that is, whatever the company's rent-ready condition policy is, you need to make sure that's clear to your vendors who are actually doing the work because they can't meet your expectation if they don't know what it is. So having those transparent conversations to say, this is typically what our what our turnovers look like. Can you meet this? Is that going to be a problem? Can you meet these deadlines? Oftentimes, we're so worried about finding them that we tend to forget to say, hey, this is when you'll get paid. These are these are my expectations. I need pictures with every single work order. I need the invoices turned in by Monday. You'll be paid every Friday. Like, those are the things that we should have in place in those conversations and not be afraid to have them. And what's the tension between, on the one hand, having a structure that works for you versus catering to the wants of the vendor, which hmm. in some cases yeah. is going to be they don't want a bunch of structure. Well, I'm not there to do their bookkeeping and I'm not there to, you know, handhold them throughout the whole thing. So I need somebody who's at least competent enough to to meet some of me, some of what I need halfway, if not more. Um, the idea is that if I bend too much, then I'm having to remember what it is I'm doing for one versus what I'm doing. It's the same thing we do with owners. We don't want to change our mm-hmm. contracts too much because then we forget what did we promise that owner. And and so we, we want to make sure that we have a baseline and at least stick to that baseline. But because of the vendors, my HVAC vendor is going to be different than my plumber, who's going to be different than my main drain, who's going to be different than my electrical. You've got trades, you've got general, you've got all of these different things. So you want to make sure that you have a good baseline and that you can be flexible with them. So yes, you're right. Don't be completely rigid, but have some flexibility so that everybody it's, it's, you got to make it a win-win. Let's talk about the maintenance coordination side of things. Okay. There's a lot of different vendors in the space. You have mm-hmm. vendors that will handle everything, that will just do the um, uh, late night calls, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the vendor plays, like the categories that seem to be working? And what do you think is important in how you set up p- these kinds of partnerships to make sure that that you get the results you're looking for? Again, I think it's setting expectations. What is the company looking for? What are you allowing your vendors or your third party to do? So the call centers or the the companies that take the calls initially um, are a good fit for some and not a good fit for others. How much to c- control do you want internally over those maintenance work orders that come in? If you're going to let it go to a third party who's going to answer the call, troubleshoot the call, dispatch your vendors or any other vendor they may have, you're basically giving control over to a company that's not an employee. And you have to be okay with that. 
And how do you, how do you feel about that? Is that, is that a good idea? A bad idea? How does it make you feel? You know, I, I say be cautious. I, I kind of look at them as they're a great insurance policy. We all need insurance for either health or auto or, you know, our home. We have that insurance just in case something happens, right? And uh, for the most part, we're all healthy. We generally, you know, don't have to use our health insurance, but it's there when we need it. I kind of look at it the same way. Let's let's use them for maybe after hours, emergencies, holidays, when we need to step away from the business so we have a good work-life balance, but the insurances, they're there when I need them. And they understand what my policies are. And remember, these are vendors that are doing it for hundreds of other companies. So now you're going to get upset with them when they accidentally do something wrong because they're human, they're fallible, and they're going to make mistakes, but they're not an employee. So be okay with that. When you come in Monday morning and they forgot to dispatch an emergency over the weekend because they had a whole bunch of other calls and it was, you know, a, a catastrophic event of some sort. Interesting metaphor on the insurance side. What about on the internal side? If you're have, doing mm -hmm. maintenance coordination internally, yeah. you can either have a dedicated function, right. you can have your PM doing it. What do you see as the structure that's most successful? I say have a, have somebody dedicated to do maintenance as a maintenance coordinator. Have somebody that's focused on nurturing those relationships with the vendors, having those relationships with the tenants. If it becomes a complicated conversation, that's what you have your PM for. I think when you have your PM start to do maintenance, that's what I always say when tenants move in. So you have the relationship from onboarding a property leasing a property, and then you have the tenant moving in. And there's only two things that happen after a tenant moves in. Rent is paid, we hope, and that's accounting function, and maintenance happens. Usually there's not a lot that's going to happen in between the move in and the move out that's going to be anything other than that that the, that the PM can't handle. But those are the two biggest things. The PM works with the accounting when there's collections, when rent is late, and then you need to call the, the tenant and ask them what's going on. They need to have that relationship with the client when um, – rent is due and the payouts are going to happen. When it comes to maintenance, I want, because that's a continual thing that happens and that tenants are submitting work orders all the time, I want somebody that's dedicated, focused to that. So if you're a property management company of 200 doors or or three, 400 doors, and um, you have your property manager doing your maintenance as well, their attention isn't going to be where they need it to be on that owner-client relationship. Customer experience is obviously huge in this business. Mm -hmm. Maintenance, one of the challenges is did the work get done? Was it accurate? Correct. Was it right? Rework, sending jobs back. How do you view closing the loop? What's the best practice in your mind to actually close the loop? Follow up. Again, setting expectations with your techs or your vendors, making sure that they are taking pictures after they do the job. Maybe they don't get paid until those pictures are you know, taken. And so when the invoice is received, you see pictures because we can't go out to every single property and do it a quality control. It's just not scalable for a lot of people as they get bigger um, because that requires more manpower, which requires more money. And so at what point are we going to charge our owner for some of this work? Because a lot of companies internally do this without charging anything. They do it for free, essentially, because they think that this is part of the management fee and they haven't had... I don't, you know, the courage to actually tell an owner, I'm going to charge you for this um, because it's extra. It's on top of collecting rent. It's on top of taking care of the asset. It's really a lot more is involved because you've got the work order that comes in. I need to troubleshoot it. 
then I need to determine who am I going to send out. So I got to find the right vendor. I'm going to dispatch the vendor. I'm going to make sure the vendor gets there. I'm going to make sure the tenant lets the vendor in. Then I'm going to have the vendor do the work. The vendor is going to call me for whatever the reason is. Then I have to manage that relationship. I may have to call the owner. I may have to call the tenant. Then when that work order is done, I have to ensure that the work order comes back. This is like three days, three, four days. Then I'm going to look for pictures. I'm going to make sure the work is done. I'm going to look at the invoice. Is that the amount that you and I discussed? And does that meet, you know, within the realm of what we, you know, can tell the owner? Am I sharing that invoice with the owner or am I marking it up? There's a couple different things that you can do it. Most companies don't mark it up. They share the invoice with the owner and they forget to close the loop on following up with the tenants to see, you know, was that work done? There's So from start to finish, it can take three to four days for just one work order to actually be completed. And those are the, those are the things that we need to do, but we're doing it for free. And what's in, even interesting is that a lot of companies will share that invoice with a vendor to the owner. But did that vendor bill the owner? No, they build the management company. So who's at risk? So if the owner says, that's not really what I agreed to, and that actually exceeds my not to exceed limit. I thought it was 500. You were supposed to call me if it exceeded $500. You forgot to call me. Oh, well, it's only 550. Well, I'm not going to pay it. You need to go back and get a discount on that. That's not what our contract says. I didn't agree to that but I need you to pay for it. Well, no, I'm not going to pay for it. So there's this scenario that you have to think of, like, how are we going to manage that? And then you've got owners who have these home warranty programs and mm-hmm. those take, right? <laughs> right? We all know about them. So they're a headache. So I'm like, why are we doing that? Now I have to work with another call center who's going to call some vendor I don't know, I didn't vet. And then the tenant doesn't know any of this, by the way. They just know that they have a problem. And who are they going to complain to? They don't know the owner because we don't want them to know the Mm -hmm. owner. They're going to complain to me. So if there's a problem, I could get sued or I can get the complaint. I can get the bad review. Owner doesn't, the owner is like absolved of all of this because we chose to manage the property and take on all the control and try to pass on this, you know, invoice that they, you know, most likely will pay, but disgruntedly. Well, you do a great job of, you do a great job of making it sound like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. You're doing a great job of making it sound like (laughs) something that you should get paid for. So let's go there. Let's talk about, you can monetize maintenance in a variety of different ways. Uh, You can have an explicit charge. You can do vendor markup. We've even seen people charge the tenant. You can do it in a variety of different ways. What are you, what what are your preferences here? What do you see? My preferences don't do it for free. So if you touch it, you should make money on it, especially in maintenance. And Here's the thing. I we, You talked about earlier. I said we should have a designated maintenance coordinator. That's a headcount for that property. Who's paying for it? The company is. So I'm charging a management fee. Industry standard is 10%. We'll just, you know, 10% or $100. That's usually the baseline. Easy math. Easy math. So if we say for $100, I'm going to manage your property, and they expect me to manage all of the maintenance work that comes in. Some of it might be warranty. Some of it not. Rental licensing, because that might be a thing in the area. Rent control, that might be a thing. You know, application screening, showing. Like, we're doing a lot. Some people charge a placement fee. Some don't. Some are just charging a straight management fee. That's a lot of work for $100. And I have how many people touching that property? At least three. I've got a leasing agent, a property manager, and a maintenance coordinator. And maybe not even all. It could be a different different roles. But you have at least two or three people touching that. And their time... If you were to do an analysis of how much that costs you per employee, per property, you're probably losing money if you don't have the revenue streams in place. Mm. So one of the revenue streams is, yes, charge for maintenance. And you're right. It can be 
a myriad of different ways. And it has to be comfortable and you have to confidently be able to say, this is what I'm charging you and this is why. And, and owners can say, you know what, I don't want that and that's okay. But be transparent and be upfront about it, but don't have an apology in your voice when you're trying to talk about it. Is there a most common, what do you, what do you see mm. most commonly amongst the variety of options? Um, I think there's probably two. They're going to do a, they're going to do a markup or a vendor discount, you know, a, a discount buyback program type of thing with a vendor, you know, vendor charges you a thousand, 10% kickback type of thing. Uh, you know, they, you pay them 900. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, Here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. In terms of the impact that maintenance has on the overall picture of the business, the satisfaction, the resident satisfaction, mm -hmm. the um, impact on the, the tax on the owner, right? If you're doing too much, if there's too much maintenance, the owner may be rethinking, do I want to hold on to this property? Is there a lot of money out of pocket? Yeah. Maintenance is hugely impactful on a variety of factors that impact churn. When you think about the kind of outcomes of maintenance. What are, what are the, the the key levers that, in your mind, justify paying a lot of attention to it? Like, what's what, the biggest pain point in the in what we do for property management? Like I said, it's the one thing that happens guaranteed after a tenant moves in. And we, you know, for companies that spend a lot of time into the condition of the property prior to tenant moving in. Um, and, you know, making that experience great. The tenants moving in, we've done everything. We've made it contactless or we've met them on site. We've, we've gone to all of this effort. That all goes away the first time that a tenant has a maintenance issue because that's the problem right there. So roadblock number one is tenants frustrated because something happened, something broke. Roadblock number two is when the owner is told and they're like, I'm not paying for that. So how do we get over that piece of it? And I, I look at this as we're all in this as called property management. And I think we should look at it and say it's asset management because what we're doing is we're taking care of this asset that's a really big part of this owner's portfolio. And if we approach it differently and proactively work with our owners every month or every quarter and say, hey, here's a review of your property the last you know, the last quarter. This is how your property did. And if we approach it differently, then the conversations for when they happen, maintenance or anything else, become easier. And the owner doesn't dread the phone call or get upset with us because we have another maintenance problem that we're bringing them. And we have to do our due diligence to make sure that we're bringing on a tenant that we hope will take care of the property. At the same time, we're also having a, a baseline of what our properties should be. So some people are, are managing D-class properties or C-class properties, and that's their specialty, and that's totally fine. But knowing that, they have to go into it with the owner saying, because of the class of property, expect this much maintenance or this is going to happen every month. But don't have that conversation once. Have that conversation more often. And we tend to not do that. We shy away from talking to our owners because we're worried 
it's, you know, we just don't want to talk to them. We're worried that they'll cancel us. We're, they'll get mad at us. We, we just don't want any of that. What are the most common uh, instances of preventative maintenance that you feel like mm-hmm. are the biggest value add? Uh, programs that you can do like HVAC programs. You can do, um, you know, depending where you're, you are in the country, I think, you know, snow, you know, snow removal, getting things in place for seasons, um, lawn care, um, taking care of the yard, you know, so instead of just mowing the lawn, maybe we're doing a spring cleanup or a fall cleanup, you know, keeping the property in good condition is really important so that we actually put, you know, avoid some of these really big ticket maintenance things that can happen. If you have clogged gutters, for example, you should be doing those every spring because if that could lead to roof leaks and things like that. So helping the owner actually see that the preventative side is actually really smart for the, you know, equity into the home and the valuation of it later um, is important for them. Do you work with any clients that do in-house maintenance and also service third party? Yes. Yeah, they, um, so I, I've had clients who have done their own maintenance. They have their own maintenance company and they service not only their own property management company, but also service other property management companies. And then I have others who have done it for like, you know, their community as a separate business and they're doing it, you know, as, as retail, I guess is what you would call it. Are, do you have any that are doing it for other management companies? Yes. And yeah. So, and is that not a, is there no, no weird vibes about that? No, not. Because kind of like going back to what I said earlier, it, that's the biggest fear for a lot of property management companies is maintenance. They don't they don't know how to do it, so they either shy away from it and only use third party, and again pass all of those expenses straight to the owner, but are still expending somebody to have to go, you know, at least facilitate and coordinate and do all of that. So they're still doing all of that, but they're not they're not taking in any profit for it because they're just they fear it. So they just would rather do it at a minimum and pass it on to somebody else. We've been talking a lot about maintenance, but obviously mm-hmm. there's a variety of areas that drive dysfunction in a business. When you yeah. step in, you're brought in as a consultant to diagnose yeah. with a company that's struggling. What are the most common categories of dysfunction that you see that you typically diagnose or organizational dysfunction? There's a, there's a book called the five dysfunctions of a Patrick team. Lencioni. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and that usually, you know, that books are really, it's, it was, really good because it kind of hits it right on the head. It's, it's exactly, it's the team can be the most dysfunctional, but it usually is because of certain things, right? So communication. Um, so really I go in and I kind of do a gap analysis and that's one area that I'm focusing on is how does the team operate? Does their role meet the functions that they're doing? Does the title that you've given them if you're calling somebody a director of ops, if you're calling somebody a property manager, or you're calling somebody a maintenance coordinator, does that generally, you know, coincide with the functions that you're having them do? Or are you having them do other things that um, are taking up too much time and they're not allowed to focus on some of the things that they need to be doing? Are they client facing? Are they tenant facing? Um, so that's part of my analysis. Part of it's also looking at financial, you know, the financials and looking at their revenue streams, their, in, you know, the income, the expenses, what are we spending our money on? What is your headcount? What is your payroll? Um, does it exceed, you know, your profitability? And so looking at that, just on the baseline, just to get, again, just to get them to know and see their, and look at their business differently. The biggest thing I see is that they don't even utilize reporting. Many of the companies just don't even know their numbers. They think they know them and they have an idea of what they are, but if I asked them certain things, they wouldn't they wouldn't know anything, what their profit per door is, what their MRU is. They don't 
they don't know any of that. What are, what are the leadership soft skill gaps that you see? Most small business operators, mm -hmm. they didn't go to business school. Right. They haven't had a ton of formal leadership training. What are the, the beliefs or the patterns or the, the skill gaps that you see there? I think they go into it thinking, you know, we start these companies because we have a passion for real estate or we have a passion because we've, we've dived in and we have our own properties. And so we've, you know, grown them into our own uh, to, to manage for others. What we didn't expect was now we have to hire people to help us do this because we can't do it alone. At some point, you, you cap out. And um, so now we have to manage people. And it's the people skills that, you know, just, you know, tenant or not tenants, but employees have, you know, they need vacation, they need time off, they need, you know, sick days and things like, and those things happen. And when those things happen, who does the work fall onto? So training is the biggest lack of, you know, what I don't see them doing. Um, so leaders tend to not, they kind of, I call it baptism by fire. They hire Abdication. somebody. Yeah, they hire somebody and just kind of throw them against the wall and see what sticks and then let them create their own role because they're too afraid to manage them the way they want it to be managed because they don't want them to leave. Mm. And so there's that, in, you know, they, they know where the bodies are buried. And so I can't get rid of so-and-so because they've been with me for 10 years. And if I get rid of them, it could be really detrimental. And mm. they know all of these things that I haven't had time to write down. Mm. That's kind of. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's it for me. You're that's it for you. You're reminding me of a conversation I had where somebody explained to me that somebody had embezzled from their company yeah. and that team member was still there. They yes. still had gainful employment. Yeah. Why? Because this person, the owner was so self-conscious. I don't know how to do this person's job. I can't fire them. I feel held hostage within my own business. I see that. Not quite the embezzlement. Part. I see it a lot though, where it's the fear of letting somebody go because they know so much and it's, and you've given them too much, you know, knowledge. A lot of people are, you know, there's, when I started, it was, I bootstrapped everything, right? And there's a lot of us out there that are doing that. We're working really hard, 40, 50, 60 hours a week just doing this. But there's also a lot of people out there going, I'm just, I'm done. I don't want to work in my business anymore. I want to work on my business. And so they quickly hire people and too many people to fill all of these little gaps in the business. And so they think that can only be solved by people. So I often come in, I'm like, You've, you've got 200 properties and seven people. Mm -hmm. Like, how are you making money? Well, I'm not. Well, I know that. So it's base, It's breaking it all down. Again, looking at, well, what are you having them do? Because I hear it a lot. Well, my team is just overwhelmed all the time. What does that mean? They're overwhelmed. They don't know how to manage their time. So it's time management. You have an owner who's also disengaged a little bit mm -hmm. and doesn't know where to start. Implementation's a big key. Training's a big key. And, and kind of just getting back to the foundation and just stripping it all away. So it's looking at the entire organization. I, I often will redo an org chart for a company and I take out the names and I do it on purpose because this is not a personal emotional decision. This is a factual, what do you want your company to look like and what roles do you need and what functions do those roles need to do? Because everybody does it very differently, right? So do I need one property manager? Do I need two? Do I need three? Do I need assistants? Do I need maintenance coordinators? Do I need field agents? Do I need a director? Like all of these roles are in play. Then I build it out and then I'm interviewing the team and then I'm looking at who is the right fit and it, it could they could still be in the same position they started in or who doesn't fit into this new organization and how are we going to, you know, 
execute that. Restructures are challenging and oftentimes mm-hmm. people feel threatened and they're not, uh, there's lack of disclosure. But what I know is that when you don't have systems and metrics in place, you are fundamentally subject to what you are being told. And yeah. many folks want a level of proximity from the business and away from the business that they are not in a position to audit what they are being told. Now, they hope that what they're being told is right, but let's be honest, there's no audit or QA. You're right. That's a good point. That's a good way of saying it. There is no audit. And they're and they're almost scared to do the audit because it's, you know, it's almost like what I don't see is not there. <laughs> so Can't I, hurt me. No, right? Exactly. So that's exactly what I see. So there's been a lot of shift towards more workflow, more automation, more systems, more processes, et cetera. Sure. What are you seeing there in that space and what, what excites you? I think automation excites me, but it doesn't eliminate the human factors. So. Oh, absolutely So not. I think that's a fear because people are like, you know, they're, they worry. So the one of the other challenges I see, though, is that owners of companies uh, listen to their employees to the to a fault where they're like, oh, we don't need that system. I, I'm, I've been doing it this way the whole time. It's fine. I'm fine doing five steps when it could be done in one or two. Whereas I'm looking at it going, if I do this though, and I introduce something that can automate by being, you know, that's triggered off as something else that you've entered into the software and that automates an email out. And that allows your person to be more focused on something else. Again, taking care of the client, looking at looking at the business differently. What is important to them? What is your mission statement? What is your vision statement for the entire company? Most don't have that either. And then saying, if, if your focus is to be customer centric, what are you doing to do that? And if and if your team is spending 70% of their time answering emails and answering the phone and not doing any and, and not able to do other things, you're paying a lot of money for that. So how can I automate those functions off of them and have them be more focused on being proactive into the business? What kind of engagement buy-in do you see with teams when you bring in or suggest these tools? It's mixed. I think some are relieved. I try to I try to put it in such a way that, hey, if if you're owner brought me in here, if the client brought me in here, that's kind of a good thing. I'm trying to here to make your the whole company more efficient and help you not feel so overwhelmed. So I have an ability to kind of help them feel a little bit at ease. I'm not there to take their job. I don't want their job. I'm there to help them become more efficient. I will, in the interim, find out if they're doing their job well. But when it comes down to change, it's going to be a mixed bag. Some adamantly are against it. They don't want it. They're fear change and they're going to fight tooth and nail. And that is just a wrong fit in the beginning because we're in an industry that changes constantly. Mm-hmm. COVID even taught that. So we've had to pivot with that alone. And if they couldn't comfortably do that, how am I going to expect them to even get to a different, you know, year? <laughs> Which, you know, I don't know what next year is going to bring, but I guarantee it's going to bring new technology and change. Undoubtedly, that we can, we can agree on. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the industry, what would it be? Uh, that's a really good question. Just one, charge for what you're worth. Charge for what you're worth, which you could reframe as have the confidence to charge what you're worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a function of, it's derivative I think of everybody, confidence. Yeah, you're right. Because everybody is like, yes, I, I, I should be getting paid this, but I'm too afraid to ask for it. So be confident in what you are doing. Setting boundaries is a corollary. Oh, yeah. 
that's definitely a part of it. Setting boundaries, um, hmm. knowing when to say no, not everybody's a good fit and that's okay. Hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, when you're first starting off, we, we take everybody and anybody and, and a lot of industries do that. It's not just ours, but we'll, we'll take, we'll take any owner. But after a while, you, you've set your avatar, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, I know what I want. I know what kind of property class I want. I know what kind of rent I want. I pretty much now know what kind of owner I want. And um, so if it's more investor-focused, go for that. If it's more the accidental landlord, go for that. If you want to be a boutique business that holds their hand throughout the whole thing, great. Do that, but charge more for it because it's going to cost you more. There's an interesting question to frame that issue when folks are afraid to charge more. And the question is, where else is this showing up in your life? The unwillingness to command and ask for what you're worth. Mm-hmm. Does that show up anywhere else in your life? It's an interesting reflection. It feels isolated. It's the money. It's business. It's blah, blah, blah. There's something inside of some people that gives them no hesitation for making the ask pronto right now. This is what I need of you. Let's Mm -hmm. get real clear. I need you to do these things now. Other people's wiring and constitution, it's, it's more, it's more begging. It's more asking. Can I have, I think that's, that's, um, there's something deeper there and it's a, it's a rich conversation to be had for folks that are willing to reflect in that way. That's like therapy. <laughs> I think that isn't that what we do? It's all the it's all the same human experience, and that work and personal are deeply intertwined. On the personal side, for you, what does your evolution personally look like in your career? Who was the Deb that started versus the Deb now, and what oh, kind gosh. of what have you what have you had to let go of to change and, and shift? That's a really deep question. That's a good one. So who I was and who I am now are two completely different people. I think as we get older, life experiences have made us wiser in a lot of ways. Some for some of it's schooling for me. Um, you know, I, I finished my MBA. That was something I was very proud of and something I really, I did for myself. Really. Congratulations. And um, that was something I felt that I knew would internally make, fill a little bit of a void for me. But, um, you know, family experiences have, have drastically changed my situation as well, as I think it has for some people. Um, and so I now probably have more empathy than I ever had before mm. because of my own personal experiences. I have a daughter who struggled with addiction, or I should say is probably still struggles with addiction. And um, so I jokingly say therapy, but, you know, lots of therapy, lots of um, kind of looking internally on what could I have done. Everybody plays the coulda, shoulda, woulda game. I think we all do it, mm-hmm. but I can't dwell in it. So I have to learn from it and I have to learn quick because life happens because tomorrow's tomorrow and it's going to come here in how many hours. So there's 24 hours in a day. How much can I do in a day and how successful can I be in that day to feel good about myself, to feel good about who you know, who I'm working with. So I think those are really important things. How has your relationship with achievement shifted over time? Uh, with achievement, I think it's some, some of it's all relative. You know, I think it, it's, I'm, my biggest competitor is myself. So I'm always trying to improve who I am and what I could be doing. But I also want to know how is it going to benefit those around me? I 
I know that my actions can be a direct reflection of how my family reacts. So I know that I need to be, you know, on it as much as, a, you know, as much as I can. Not just, it's not success. It's just, you know, who I am mentally and physically. Like, it's keeping our mind sharp, our body sharp. You know, I, you know, doing the things that are important because we have one life, we have one body, take care of it. And how do we go about doing that? Mm, well said. When you work with folks as a consultant and you step into their business, is there any pattern that comes up in terms of how the business owner that feels stuck and is parachuting you in? Mm. You see any patterns about how they relate to the business or achievement? They're tired. They're overwhelmed. They're, um, I think they feel like they've hit a wall because they don't know. It's easier to look at somebody else's problems and fix them. Always. Isn't it? Instead of looking internally. And I think they're too close. Everything's too emotional and too close for them. And it might not even be that they're emotionally tied to their employees, but they're emotionally tied to the business. Mm. And so if it That's fails. That's relatable. If Been it, there. Yeah. If it fails, then did I fail? They're a failure. Yeah. Oh, totally. But, but is that true? No. No. And actually, if you don't fail, then have you really been successful? Did you take any risks? Did you wager anything? Yeah. Are you asking me or is that a statement? That's just, that's a, <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. That was a rhetorical question. I was thinking that. Yeah, right? And, and the thing is, that we're all taking risks in a lot of things that we do. But part of taking a risk is also knowing when we need to stop. And, you know, mm. and, and look at it differently. That, huh. that is so deeply relatable to me. What you said, did, if the business failed, did I fail? I felt that so intensely when I had one business and it was the repository for all my hopes and dreams and aspirations. I conflated it with my, my manhood, my ability to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can't provide for your family, what kind of a bum are you, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you're working this hard, you're working so hard and you can't figure out how to make it work. I mean, what does that mean? What kind of a commentary is it on you as a human? That was a really, really heavy phase of my life mm -hmm. and starting multiple things, having my career span the arc of multiple opportunities, it created that detachment. I can't be each one. It's just not possible. I have enough things going on. They have their own lives, their own people. There was a lot of freedom for me in being able to step back and detach a bit there. One of the things I learned, I think kind of going back to one of your questions, I think the biggest thing for me is learning vulnerability mm. and becoming, and actually, and it's okay to be vulnerable, especially in business. I think people think that leaders are to be revered and, um, you know, untouchable people that they're like, oh, if I could just meet them, my, you know my life is, you know, I and envy comes into play. Mm -hmm. But actually I think good leaders are people who have shown that they've failed and be and have overcome it and that they're vulnerable and that they've shared their story. And that is a big piece of it. So, I think for a long time I thought that failure was never an option and that I couldn't let people see I looked at it as being weak. Mm. Like if I if I show this, mm you know, then I'm weak. For a long time, when my daughter first started having her struggles, we didn't tell anybody for, we didn't even tell our families, like our parents didn't know. But it came to a point when we had to put her in rehab that 
it kind of like, well, now we got to have, we have to tell our family because they're going to wonder where she's at because, you know, so, and it was a long treatment program, but that was the start of what we felt was like the biggest failure. Like, what did we do wrong? Because we had other children that were like, you know, we, we thought we taught them all well and, and did okay. But I think, and, you know, going through that actually helped me in my business because I taught me that if I could over, if I can do this as a parent and as a, just a person outside of business, how would I be if I structured what my approach to people and their company differently and looking at, you know, and, and it's almost just, we all innately still judge people, not, not to be mean, but we all have passes of judgment that cross through us. But how would it look if you just never know what somebody's going through? Mm. So be careful on how we look at somebody and how we pass judgment and instead just show them more vulnerability and let them know that it's okay. Mm. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. Lots of therapy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, my experience has been that being able to be vulnerable is to see the humanity in other people and to, mm -hmm. which requires seeing it more in yourself, mm -hmm. being savage. Which is hard, by the way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's easier to just kick your own ass and be a savage and you're not aware of, of what you're, you're missing out until you're in a place of crisis where you're not performing, you're not meeting your own expectations, you're failing. But I think it also has to go, we've all felt that we've, you know, sometimes we, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, kind of being the Stuart Smalley of the SNLs, right? But, um, and then flipping that around and then looking in the mirror and saying that you are, I think it, it's beyond that, it's, it's actually trying to learn from that too. So, but a lot of people pick themselves up and learn that lesson and go forward. So what can we do to do that? Yeah, you know, the achievement treadmill is so interesting because you can avoid the need. Um, achievement can be an attempt to avoid vulnerability. Like I'm succeeding. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that yeah. needs all that. Like I'm winning. And it's that strength, weakness, paradox that's a real trip. I know for me that any form of weakness has felt really threatening to me. Like it's it's a threat to my well-being. And so my my reaction to that is like borderline violent at times, like to resist anything that feels like a form of weakness. But it's it's exhausting. Like you can only do it for, for so long and eventually you come to the end and then it's an opportunity to reset. And I think for small business owners, you've you've accomplished and you've persevered through so much. The idea that you can be in business was made up in the first place. Right. Nobody gave you permission. Right. It wasn't really real. You were the only person that believed. You did a bunch of just <laughs> terrible things early on to get to this point. Uh, and you're, I think the term here is that the thinking can outlive its utility. That scrappiness mm -hmm. and that hard edge that got you to here, it won't get you to there. But the thinking that was useful at one time, it outlives its utility and it starts holding you back. True. And and, and first and foremost, if you, you've started a business from nothing. So applaud yourself for that, right? Because just like you said, it, it, was, it was nothing. Nobody gave you permission, but you did it. You started it. Just because you're now at a point where you're like, I need help, doesn't mean that that's not a bad thing. Again, some of the biggest companies ask for help. 
to get to that next level. Amen. I mean, these are, you're talking about compulsive help askers, the most successful mm -hmm. people I know. Yes. It, it, the, the perverse thing to me and what blows my mind is to see over and over and over again, the most successful people that seemingly need the least help are the most invested in getting help. Mm -hmm. The people that are the most needy, not interested. And they won't implement, by the way. Correct. They'll ask and they'll ask. It's like a gym membership. If I if somebody gave me a gym membership for free, I'm never going to go. But if I have to pay for it, I'll probably go. You place some value on it. Yeah. So that's why free advice is what it is. It's free advice. <laughs> it's worth what it costs. It, exactly. But if I'm going to pay for it, I'm probably going to learn how to figure it out and implement it because it's a value. Now it just became something that will hopefully change the business and hopefully make it better. This has been great. I appreciate you coming on. We this covered a lot of ground, Deb. If yeah. anybody wanted to get in touch and learn more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? They can they can text me. They can call me. Uh, the best way is probably go to my website and I have a calendar link. They can set up a time to uh, go there. So propertymanagementconsulting.com. Pretty easy. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Until next time. Yeah. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.